Hi everyone, we are Season 7, Episode 13, our penultimate episode before the summer of 2023 when we have a little break. I have Matt Van back with me and we'll be talking about claims data and statistics and things about when insurance doesn't pay out and why. Hi Matt. Good morning, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm a little bit miffed that the sunshine has gone away, but I am inside, I'm nice and warm so I shouldn't complain too much. How are you? Yes, very, very well. And I would have to agree. It's, it's, you're on the northeast of it, or in the northeast of England. I'm on the northwest on the other side of the Pennines. Oh, right. And um, we had a lovely day yesterday, but today it's raining. So, yeah, it's been gorgeous. It's been too much because my grass needs it and my garden needs it. But, I was going to say there's that thing on um, I don't know if you ever followed it at all Matt but um, there's a social media account called Very British Problems and (laughs) they have books and stuff and one of the things is like when there's a thunderstorm coming or rain coming we all go grass needs it and it's just (laughs) the the amount of things that we all say that is just so (laughs) typically British and um, just when you said that I was like yep I can just picture their branding and everything on that (laughs) Uh, I fell straight into that one didn't I (laughs) oh absolutely absolutely well everybody this is the practical protection podcast Right then. So we're going to be going into some statistics about claims. We're going to be having some good chats and everything. Um, I had actually wanted to look at stuff like this a bit earlier in the year, but what surprised me, I didn't realise this, and I only really noticed it this year, is that actually the majority of insurers don't produce and the regulators don't put together a lot of their data until May for the previous year. So as of last month, May 2023, um, we had a lot of data that came out, and that's for the 2022 period. So that was interesting, but we're not just going to throw a load of numbers around, even though I do know some listeners really love the numbers, Um, but I think we should chat through it. So um, just some really broad ones here, and quite a lot of this is from the Association of British Insurers, but in uh, 2022, there was £6.85 billion paid out in protection insurance. Now, in terms of personal protection insurance, we had um, in the life, the critical illness cover, the income protection space, we had 287,000 policies pay out that totaled about 4.64 billion. And um, the group policy side of things paid out 2.21 billion. And one thing when I was looking at the stats, Matt, that I thought was really interesting because when we do see things about, as an advisor, when we're looking at things, income protection, anything like that and obviously somebody's had a bit of a back pain and then we're getting back exclusions it can be quite frustrating so you're just like well everybody can get a bit of back pain or sore back and it's sometimes a little bit subjective but I can understand why insurers and underwriters find it a bit tricky because when you actually look at the statistics for income protection last year in 2022 there was 15.9 thousand policies paid out and they paid out a total of 231 million pounds in income protection claims for the year and 34% of them, those claims were due to neck and back conditions. So it's it's really hard because as an advisor, Matt, I'm kind of there. And I, I want, obviously, I do not want the exclusions on there. Um, I can kind of, it's, it's, I'm it's also trying, if I was in the insurer myself and I was on the insurer side, I can imagine I would look at that statistic and think there's going to be exclusions on those policies. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 an interesting one. I think through, throughout this 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 um, kind of data ridden um, discussion that we're we're having this chat we're having, but if if we look at the um, we, we go out of insurance just for a second and look at the World Health Organization 
let's say death that's that's really i suppose where they come in uh, around the world and of course it's it, and this is around the world it's globally um it, it's it's very interesting to see that the top three causes of claim globally actually match the top three causes of claim for death for insurance policies mm. and you know, it, it 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 almost mirrors. If you look at through, if you look through all of the, the the three products that we'll specifically be talking about, life, kick, and IP, um, you can see the causes of claim that have come out over a good number of years now. Always mirror where the underwriters getting you get very interested in a in a in a, a pre-existing um, history or disclosure. Um, it's it's not rocket science that I say that, but it's it it does follow. Uh, insurance underwriting practice, there is rhyme and reason for it. We, we do follow where the main causes, of the, the, the medical conditions, where the main causes of claim are. And it's interesting, of course, uh, again, excuse me, listeners, for jumping around all over the place. It was in, interesting, of course, the musculoskeletal on income protection. But um, certainly some of the statistics that I read, and there are loads and loads of them, as you know, Catherine. Yeah. Um, but the biggest cause of um, uh, income protection claims is mental health, of course. Yeah. Um, not that far behind is musculoskeletal issues, um, the old bad back, shoulders, knees, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But certainly musculos- uh, uh, mental health and musculoskeletal are the largest too. And you can therefore understand, I hope, why underwriters are particularly interested in the history of those two those two particular conditions so yeah it's it, it, it's an interesting one in terms of in terms of the exclusion challenge then it, it's it's a very difficult one full stop for a for underwriters really to to read into a disclosure you know i mean i'm, I'm a bit of a, a musculoskeletal wreck myself having played sport for so many years seven seven when i was a when i was a kid but certainly, um, I've had operations on both my shoulders um, and on my back as well. And of course, if I, if you have a if you have a damaged shoulder, um, I dislocated it when I was young playing rugby. Mm. Um, that actually kind of it, it throws out your whole balance, and that can impact your back. Yeah. Um, if you have a bad knee, it impacts your back. Well, it can impact your back because you don't walk the same. You're not balanced the same. So the the the, the whole issue of musculoskeletal exclusions, what an underwriter does with them, is is blooming difficult. But there's there's no two ways about it. And how many? You know, you've said it before, Catherine. How many times, if if you took ten people in a room of an age, I'm not really talking necessarily really older people here. How many people would have a back? You know, say, oh, I've got a twinge in my back. Out of ten, nine. I would say so. And another thing I have to say that Alan brought up recently, and I think it's really important in one of his presentations, and and I'm not saying this is just specifically or anything to women or anything like that, but if you have a woman and she's had a child, she's very likely to have had some back discomfort during pregnancy. And then she's probably going to be spending, and obviously I'm I'm not saying it's just the women, obviously the the dads or, you know, whoever else is there um, will also be doing it, but she's going to spend probably a good three years picking up and putting down (laughs) at least three years this child that's getting heavier and heavier she's getting older and older um and there's 
it's very likely that someone who does have a, a young kid is, is going to have some kind of, of back pain. And Alan and used it as a really good example as to how women especially can actually be in, in some ways, you know, sort of someone say sort of potentially a bit unfairly looked at when it comes to income protection because you know it's that whole thing if we say with income protection is about with a lot of the mainstream insurers once you've got three things on there that's it there's there's no they're not going to be able to to have the cover and um, there's like three exclusions in a sense or potentially a rating no, absolutely uh, yeah, you know yeah. i think he used the example of you know you've got somebody she's maybe had postnatal depression she's had some back pain because she's got a young kid and there's a family member close family member with multiple sclerosis then that means straight away that with quite a lot of insurers, she can't have the income protection. So yeah. it's, it's, I know we've gone off a bit of a tangent there, no, but no, it's, I mean, it's just right. interesting. Like you said, there's so many people. And obviously if we're talking about people with kids or it might be a kid. It might be a dog. Let's put it, it that way. A lot of people, it could be anything whatsoever. You know, because something that's heavy. Yeah, exactly. You could be working in that kind of environment. I, I think, I understand why it, it's it's such a difficult area for all sides when we're looking at this. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, I personally don't agree with the with the three exclusions and you're out. Okay, and I, I've, I've publicly said that before. Oh, do you, hang on. Do you not agree with me that that's what happens, or do you not agree with me, or do you not agree that the insurers should be doing that? The latter. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say we're going to have a good debate totally, here, Matt. <laughs> no, 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 no. I totally agree with what you're saying. Okay. Yes, it, it happens, and I see it. You know, yeah. I do for a living these days, um, but I don't agree with the insurance black and white rule. Mm. You know, three, three, three exclusions, and you're out. If I can use that that, that terminology. Yeah, that's what um, we do. Because it, 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 that's assuming the whole thing is completely black and white. And it's nonsense. Things aren't black and white, particularly with mental health, particularly with musculoskeletal, particularly with income protection. Yeah. Um, using the example of the of the lady, you know, I know it's an example, um, not necessarily the the multiple sclerosis family history or the PND or anything like that. If if the lady has a um, what I would call a back strain. Or mm. some pain in her back that is caused not by a, 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 a problem with her spine per mm. se, um, then I, I would I would look upon that case very favourably. I don't necessarily if it was that that was alone, if it was that was standalone. And this is where the information needs to come from the client, yeah. and the other thing needs to take the time to ex to get to the bottom of these issues. Um, then I don't think I'd have excluded it at all. What I'm hearing, Matt, I have to say, is that what we need to do is clone you <laughs> and just. <laughs> well, not really. <laughs> I, I just think I just think it's the, the, the income protection is, um, is an incredibly important product. Um, it is my favourite. The first product product I ever took out when I was of the age yeah. was income protection before I had life. Pretty clearly, honest, actually, believe it or not, it was just about coming to its own then. Oh. Uh, when I, when I am that old, yes. Um, but income protection was the one that I took out, and yeah. I've I've always thought um, it's a fantastic product. And I think that underwriters, and you know, the, let's, let's be honest here, the, the strategy people, as as these teams are known as these days, mm. um, need to have a good hard look um, at let's say a hundred cases that have exclusions on, and see at the end of the day whether they can do better or not. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Um, that, but, you know, I, I genuinely believe, um, and I, I believe I have the right to say that we need to do, do these things better, having been in the industry, well, having been an underwriter for more than 40 years, that we could do better and we owe it to our clients to do better. And if we can do it better, then this product will become even more attractive and it won't get um, uh, IFAs being put off selling it because somebody's had a back strain. Absolutely. So I, I shall get off my um, my, <laughs> my I'm with you. and apologies I'm with you. apologies for for going down that route. But no, so, not at all. It's it's always no, good to bring this in. But you, but having said all that, let's go back to the very fundamental principle here that we're talking about: mental health and musculoskeletal. These are the two principal causes of income protection claims. So they do cause problems. Yes. So Absolutely. that's one side of the debate. And then there's the other side of the debate. And they, we need to join them as opposed to just saying, no, we can't, we can't, uh, we can't do this because it's too difficult. Yeah. I don't absolutely. think that's what writing is all about. Anyway, I'm sorry, Catherine. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> no, absolutely. So in terms of the averages then, so we're not where the, sorry, putting the money where our mouth is kind of thing. We've seen like how much is paid out, but it's also good to know percentage wise in yeah. a sense of success rate. So in terms of this is going to be looking at individual and group protection. So for people who aren't familiar, individual means that you've arranged the policy yourself. So that'd be personal protection insurance policies like life insurance, critical illness cover, income protection. And there's some little add-ons we'll talk about as well when we're looking at them and some specific product types. And with the group side, that's essentially, it says those products again, but it just means it's been set up by your employer and that you are covered under what's their group. It's what's known as a group scheme that's um, offered by their company. So the overall average success rate of protection insurance claims is 97.5%, which is, is really, really good. I have to say, I'm always that person, though, that goes, I would be the 2.5% that hasn't paid. Um, just because I'm sorry, thinking that's my luck. And that's not to say that I've done anything that I shouldn't have done on any of my insurance policies. Um, but, you know, in, in terms oh, of my cool. mind, yeah. my mind automatically goes, to, well, well, why that? So I think if we maybe look at the individual products, so... We have whole of life insurance. So that has a 99.9% .9 success rate. So basically with whole and life insurance, for anyone who isn't familiar, that is a life insurance policy that is just going to keep going, literally as it says, for the whole of your life. And it will just keep going and going and going until you do die. So when we have like that 0.1% that hasn't claimed, uh, Matt, I'm assuming that we're talking about situations where, it's, it's, to my knowledge, it's things where, Maybe people haven't kept the direct debit payments up to date and also the unfortunate situation, which we do see in places where people haven't necessarily shared everything and answered the questions as correctly as they should do. Is is that correct? I would say, I think the, the direct debit side of it, um, sadly, that, that does happen. Um, yeah. I think it would be extremely... My knowledge would tell me that's extremely rare, but yes, it absolutely does happen. Um, in terms, I, I would look at the whole of life um, market. I believe these on the basis; these are ABI stats as opposed to single mm. company stats. Is that is that right, Catherine? Yes, it is. These, yeah, yeah, that we're we're, we're looking at at the moment. Then you are going to get all of the um, uh, funeral plan 
policies that don't have any underwriting at all. Oh, so they're putting they are, so they're putting the over fifties in there. Yeah, yeah. So I, I couldn't ah. policy. I do apologise. That's right. You see them on the Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. So it'd be the over fifties. The funeral plans wouldn't. I don't uh, think gonna, sit in have, it. You'll have some whole of life in there. Um, there's, yes. there's traditional whole of life, um, but I, I believe that'll be heavily, heavy. I can spit it out. Heavily influenced by the over fifty plan market. Okay. Um, the point now, you know, you know that on the on the over fifties, you in fact you're a far better expert than I am on over fifty plans. But my understanding is that a lot of them won't pay out in the first year if somebody dies, and that um, it varies. Some, some, some it varies. Sorry, is that we can so, say? It's different. So over 50s is usually non-medically underwritten. So what they yeah, tend absolutely. to say is, right, you've got like in a sense a moratorium period, a qualifying yeah. period where you take it out. And if you die due to natural causes or ill health, um, that was something already there, pre-existing things, um, yeah. then they won't pay out in the first year, potentially the first two years. You've got some that might even do it. Um, they might just have a six-month eligibility period, yeah. but it's anywhere from six months to two years usually. Right. And what you'll find, though, is that whilst they won't pay out for health-related matters where you've died, they will pay out um, in terms of accidents. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what they do do is they they generally will refund all the premiums that have been paid if the person does pass away from natural causes during that eligibility period if, if they're right. not able to pay out the claim. Okay. So, okay, so interesting that that's there. I think yeah, I think that the point one percent is going to be a you know it, it, there might be some misrepresentation in there. That's yeah. What you alluded to, we'll, we'll talk about yeah. that a bit later on. I think, um, and there might be some DD stuff in there. I I don't know, but whole of life, to the best of my knowledge, a traditional guaranteed whole of life is is generally priced out of the market. Uh, it's just too expensive for most it is people. It is incredibly expensive, to, and uh, especially if people have taken out the renewable options. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. That becomes phenomenally expensive, and you do end up finding that a lot of people can feel quite upset towards the way that it's happening. Obviously, they've taken out something maybe in their 30s that they they think, from what they believe, it was going to cover them forever at a reasonable amount. And then as as time goes, the, the premiums obviously shoot up or the summer show comes down and it can, even from, you know, sort of like mid-50s, it can actually start to become affordable for people, yeah. um, which is which is a shame, especially in the current um, economy as well. So if we look at the other ones, and so life insurance, the average claim success is 96.9%. So I think that's probably where we're going to see a little bit more of misrepresentation you're going to have some misrepresentation in there as well it's what we haven't specifically got um within the percentage stat claims is terminal illness yes Um, my understanding is that abi generally do life and ti together yes i would i think that is the case so that 90 let's say 97 percent, 96.9 percent um will will include terminal illness claims as, as well as life claims now, in terms of in terms of life claims, um, no surprise to any, any of our listeners that, that cancer remains the um, the, the the prime cause, uh, number yeah. one cause of death claims, followed by uh, cardiovascular, so your heart attacks, um, and then thirdly, might be a bit of a surprise to people, but it's respiratory disease. 
Uh, and a big one in there, again, it, it mirrors, as I said before, the World Health Organization data, hmm. whereby um, uh, COPD is. A I was just one. thinking COPD when you said respiratory. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a chronic obstructive airways disease to mm. uh, to, to people who uh, like the full name. Uh, chronic um, obstructive pulmonary disease. Sorry. Just, we airways. switched from COPD to COPD. COAD. COAD. <laughs> Thank you. Thank Is you that right? Me. You're absolutely right. Um, and which either which one we want to use. <laughs> um, it's a long thing. There we go. It's a, it's a long thing, absolutely. Um, you, you're going to find most what i should say is just a, another name for copd coad is actually chronic bronchitis and i think bronchitis yes. is you know it certainly will be a, a term which is well known by everybody but it's yeah. with chronic bronchitis and copd not 100 percent um but is often linked to smoking and yes um you know you within that, yeah, I've got lung cancer. You've got lung cancer as well, but obviously we're kind of we'll include those within that first thirty-three percent. Um, but so so that might be a bit of a surprise to people. But yes, misrepresentation um, on life will certainly form part of that that the fact that the figure isn't one hundred percent. And um, I, a lot of people certainly certainly. Um, in the underwriting and claim fraternity, we'll know that the ABI uh, pulled together a guidance note, um, which is it, it, it's very it's certainly very interesting to me. But then again, I am a nerd. Let's be honest about it. Let's, <laughs> let's be public about it. Um, and this uh, came out to when I'm looking at it anyway. Came out 2008. Uh, I do remember. Um, uh, working on this uh, at the time um, as on, on part with, with the ABI, if you like, and others, uh, I might add. Um, and it, it, was, it was incredibly interesting to, to hear why um, the ABI felt, bear in mind that, you know, people lobby the ABI, mm. um, that they needed to do something. That um, might be controversial in saying that effectively, what came out in the guidance document very much mirrored what the life industry did anyway. Okay. But some of the stories that came out of um, other types of insurance that, that were mentioned um, were, were quite frightening, uh, where claims have been turned down and they've treated in a very, very, very strange sort of way. Okay. And I think they, this one is long-term products, by the way, this guidance, but it, yeah. was, it was it was interesting that, of course, and Catherine, you and I have spoken about it, not necessarily in a, in a, a um, this format, uh, the podcast format, but, um, you know, how a, a, a bad story, a horrendous story that comes out from another type of insurance um, you know, the, the the public often say, well, OK, if it, let's say if it was travel insurance or mm. motor insurance, let's go travel insurance, um, how they think, oh, well, life insurers are going to do exactly the same. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and, it is, and it's a huge bugbear in our industry, as you know. Yeah. Um, you know, I know Alan is very serious on this as well as your good self. Um, it, it's It's a huge shame. But I can absolutely categorically say that bear in mind I was around, I've been around for a long time before 2008, um, that the guidance that is out 
that is used now by all claims assessors and claims teams is not that far off what we were doing anyway. Yes. But it was good to, to have a document which was visible. Also, let's be fair, it does, it does um, provide consistency as well, a degree of consistency across the industry. So that's pretty Same. good. But misrepresentation, um, again, is something that you could talk about, I could talk about for hours on. Um, yeah. And really, uh, I'm not not intending to do that whatsoever. Uh, but the if you look at the documents, and I, and I would advise people, if people are interested in it, I would have a, 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 a skim through, because it is interesting. Um, and effectively, the ABI um, have, or they, they suggest that insurers class mis misrepresentation um in three different ways innocent yep. negligent and deliberate or without any care uh, yep. something that you you know very very well yep. um now misre misrepresentation is effectively um where an individual has not necessarily been open and honest in terms of answering the questions on an application form. Now, of course, like that's that's a very bland statement that yes. I've just come up with there. Hence why you have three categories. Yeah. Okay. Because it's not fair just to simply say it's not consumer friendly. It's not fair, full stop, to simply say, well, you haven't told us this, end of, you're not going to get paid out. Yeah. So three different categories. So I'm going to read this a little bit. So excuse me, I will sound like I am reading, um, but it, I think it's the, the best way. So the innocent category, uh, the outcome of, of innocent misrepresentation is that the claim is paid in full. Yeah. Okay. So this is categorized really by the, the customer that they, they've acted honestly and reasonably in all circumstances, including the customer's individual circumstances, but only where these were known to the insurer. In the circumstances, a reasonable person would have considered that the information was not relevant to the insurer and the non-disclosure would have resulted in a different underwriting outcome. So this is where the, the um, <laughs> I was going to, I was going to going to, to, uh, to gloss over it a little bit innocent, but this is where the reasonable person um, has acted as, as honestly as they possibly could. Now, sometimes it's very rare these days that the customer doesn't actually know the full detail of a medical condition that they have. Yes. And as long as they, let's just take, let's take, let's, let's take bronchitis. We've just talked about it. Yeah. Uh, so honestly and reasonably is um, they, put under the respiratory question on an application form, they say, yes, I suffer from bronchitis. Um, Drop-down boxes these days will ask for, uh, during the application process, will ask for more. But they, but the customer can only answer those questions as best they can. They, they are not, generally, they are, they are not um, pulmonary specialists, respiratory specialists, using that example. And therefore, if the, if the uh, insurer requires further information, I, I honestly believe that going back to the actual client, the person taking out the policy, um, is the, is often the best way to gain information. Otherwise, you need to go to the GP, and GPR GP reports are great, but they can have holes in them. Um, 
I was going to say as well, I've got three really clear examples of these different types of disclosures, if that helps. Well, do, you fire, do you want to, do you want to um, come in now, Catherine? Yeah, hopefully. So it helps. So in, in terms of the innocent one, so yeah, when, yeah. when I'm doing my training, what I tend to say to people is the innocent one, let's say someone's adopted and the insurers will turn around and say, basically, like, do you know your family medical history? Yes, no, don't know. And let's just assume that the person says they don't know on the questions because they just don't know they are adopted. So they answer it truthfully and to the best of their knowledge, as we were saying, the innocent side of things. But then they've set up the policy 10 years later, they are actually reunited with their family and they discover that someone has a condition that is would have been listable in a sense in the insurance application. So the insurer isn't going to change or have like any issues with the policy they're not going to void the policy they would still honor a claim because there was no way for that person to have known that before they'd obviously actually had any contact with their family there's no feasible way that they would have foreseen that they would have eventually been in connection with them so that would be seen as kind of like an innocent one when we're talking about the the negligent side of things so that would be something where i think if we maybe take the example of depression so maybe, and obviously depression doesn't always come with, you know, it can often be standard terms for cover um, in the life insurance space, the critical illness space. So I'm not saying that, but let's just say on this assumption that this depression would have meant that the premiums were increased a little bit. So where it's sort of like not being completely truthful, um, you know, or maybe the person's forgotten it or something like that. And there is a claim come up and then it's suddenly established, well, actually, you should have told us about that depression. And if you had done, the premiums would have been this much. So what we do tend to find, if I'm right, Matt, is that I believe in that situation, what would happen is that the insurer would say, right, either kind of send a sense, make up the premiums that we should have been getting because we would have charged you this if we'd known or carry on just as, you know, we don't need to do that. But what we'll do is we'll reduce the sum assured to... Um, make sure that to, to, to match what that premium is and what we would have offered you at that point if we'd known this information. And then when we get to the deliberate side of things, that would be say like, and I think as well when it comes to deliberate, it, it can be potentially fraudulent. Um, so there is that concern there. But also as well, in some ways, I kind of want to say that in some ways, it's almost sometimes a little bit, not innocent, but naive maybe sometimes, or just desperation with the deliberate non-disclosure. So like maybe somebody... They've been to the doctor, they have some pins and needles, it's been happening for quite a while. The doctor said to them, look, I think you might have multiple sclerosis. And they think, oh, wow, I better get my insurance in place. And they go and they fill out a form and they just, you know, complete it so they get their insurance started. But then obviously at that point, they will have had to answer questions that will they'll have had to say no to where they should have said yes and reasonably should have known because they've literally just spoken to a GP who has said to them, we think you might have multiple sclerosis or potentially cancer. That's a, another one as well that can sometimes this can happen in and um, from my knowledge. And at that point, the again, if there was a claim, it would then be seen, you know, the insurer doesn't jump to this option, but to to, from my understanding is that what they will do is they'll potentially void the policy from inception and at that point you know best case scenario is that the person gets their premiums refunded to them or the family gets the premiums refunded to them obviously worst case scenario is that we're actually going to go down a fraud route which would obviously be very unpleasant um and especially you know depending upon the situation the policy holder is in does that sound like a good kind of summary explanation matt um yeah yeah you, you picked up some um yeah. How, she, how she would do, Catherine? That's, we've known each other for a while now. Mm -hmm. Pick some kind of uh, some of the difficult 
situations <laughs> that, yeah. uh, that one comes across in the claims departments. Um, I must admit, I think I wasn't sure if you were talking about in the event of an actual claim, but I don't think an insurer would ask the, the life assured or whatever uh, who was left um, to make up the premiums they should have paid. What's in the event of a claim? I haven't heard that one before. And I before thought it was a. I, I, um, whilst, whilst maybe the... I've been dreaming, um, but I thought that would was possibly the case, so they could still get the sum assured needed rather than automatically the reduction of the sum assured. I don't. Uh, if if their person was actually making a claim, yeah, then they would have they, they would be in, they would have nothing to lose by paying the extra money. Oh, that's a very very good point. Sure. Yeah, so I possibly so made I, that I, a bit I, up. But, no, 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 not necessarily. Remember, I'm afraid, you know, despite my 40 years, I tend to, I'm pretty mainstream in my experience. There could, could be some companies out there on the, if I dare call them fringe companies, or non-mainstream companies, that sounds better. Um, that, that ah, do... I'm wondering if I'm thinking whilst policy active. Ah, well, that's a different scenario. There we go. I'm thinking to myself, I'm sure I've not completely made this up. So, yes, on point of claim, yes, absolutely, you are right. But whilst the policy is active, if they become aware of something, they'll say, well, you can either make up the premiums that you have you should have been paying us or we'll reduce the sum assured. Yeah, that's yeah, I knew it, I knew it was somewhere. <laughs> Just... I think also it depends on, um, dare, dare I say, it can, um, uh, insurers' systems to be able to cope with that type of scenario as well. But yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's more, potentially more likely to happen than, than certainly the other way around. In terms of um, deliberate and without care, this fraudulent point, um, it's the best of my knowledge. And if there's anybody out there who wants to disagree, please feel very, very happy to. It'll only add to my knowledge. But I, I my understanding is that the, the, the fraudulent element has never been used and isn't used. Not fraud, not fraud in terms of this type of um, situation. Are you thinking particularly of maybe... Um, some of the very high profile cases where people haven't died, they put in a claim and haven't died. Yeah, th I wouldn't think that was the same situation, to be honest. But th there is that one. But then there was, I was at a conference not long ago and they yeah. had somebody who was from the fall department yeah. um, in the London, oh, London Police yeah. Force. Um, lucid, it wasn't the Met. Yeah, it was lucid. lucid. Yeah. 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 And there was somebody there. And to be honest, I think it was more in the general insurance space. Yeah. General different people. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. But yeah, obviously there is the, I'm sort of like thinking along the lines of we've got fraudulent, we've possibly got the uh, money laundering issues, we've got lots of, you know, different things that could potentially come out of it as well. Um, but I have to say, Matt, we've been nattering a good amount of time and I'm going to need to start rushing us because um, because oh, no. of different appointments <laughs> and meetings and everything like that. So if we can do a quick rundown of the last bits of the data. So we've, we've talked about the life. Can, can I just say one thing? Yeah? I do apologise. I was going to add here, I, what I was saying earlier, that this the, the, the current ABI guidelines mirror what, what insurers um, did. Yeah, I, I stand by that. One of the really good things that came out of this piece of work, though, was to um, uh, convince insurers that specific medical questions and not vague ones were the order of the day. Because the ABI have said, if if somebody, if you, if an insurer asks a vague question, then how on earth, you, you know, a, a life assured is going to give you a vague answer. 
and don't start yeah. complaining about it if they don't give you a full answer if you don't ask the specific question. So proposal yes. form um, design definitely improved on the back of this work. Sorry, that's all I really wanted to add. Sorry. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. So we've established, when we're looking at the life insurance, so the 96.9%, we've got a mixture there. Again, it'll be policies where the payments haven't been kept up to date. It will be uh, what's known as a uh, misrepresentation, which can be innocent. It can be yeah. it can be people have just forgotten things at times about medical things that have happened in the past. So it's, you know, it's, it's often that. It's not often... I don't I think it's more likely that people have just forgotten something rather than everyone is just deliberately not putting things right in their application. Okay. Your your um, your your bottom line figure there it, to 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 get down to your 96.9 is going to be your your negligent and your deliberate yeah. without care. Um innocent are paid in full. Yes. What um, I would say is sorry, Catherine, I know you're gonna yeah. I'm, I'm being a pain. No, no. <laughs> not for the not for the first time. Um, <laughs> but if on the basis of the terminal illness claims that are also within that 97, 96.9% figure, then you are going to get some claims that are not paid from not meeting the definition of what a terminal illness That's, is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm sorry if you're about to say that, but I'll I'll, no, I'll, now, I'll now leap out again and, and pass back to you. No, no, absolutely. And I think that's that's really important to say because I was thinking I was thinking of that on the critical illness, which we're now going to look at. But yeah. in terms of the terminal illness, I think that's really important because we are looking at successful claims and we are looking at decline claims. And I think from things we've said before as well between the two of us, the tricky thing with terminal illness and trying to look at it in these figures is the fact that terminal illness is often postponed rather than declined. So it, it isn't added into the insurer's decline statistics because they've not technically declined it. But it has been postponed, so it's also it's it's kind of sat in there as I, I kind of don't I'm not really sure where it does sit to be honest in these stats, which is a it's bit. In, it's in well, it doesn't sit in there. Full, yeah. full stop, I think um, it, all I would say is and add to what you were, said there is I, I totally agree with the the, the postponed route, and I would add the claims people I would guarantee do not go out of their way to postpone these cases. Of course. The, the challenge is for them is to, with the uh, consultant who is looking after that particular individual, we're looking at uh, generally cancer here, of course, mm-hmm. um, is to try and predict whether that person is going to die in the short term. That is yeah. incredibly difficult to do. It was very difficult to do 10 years ago. Now it is even more difficult to do. The amount of medical advances because absolutely. of the people keep keeping people alive, absolutely. Um, okay, I'll hand on my heart and say insurers and claims people do their absolute best to be fair when they when they look at these claims, but nevertheless, um, it's it, I, I'm not going to say it's not a challenge, it is a big challenge, absolutely. Back to you, Catherine. Okay, then. So very, very quick rundowns then on critical illness cover, average successful claim rate across the market is 91.6% in terms of successful. So I'm going to take it like we were saying before, not meeting definition probably is a key part of that. So when we're saying not meeting definition, um, we're saying that let's heart attack is a really good example here in the sense of with a lot of insurers, they will say heart attack of a specified severity. So that means there's a certain marker in your blood, which will determine how severe the heart attack was. 
So when you get all those medical reports in, um, the insurer will be looking essentially for a number, as far as I'm aware, Matt, um, yeah, where yeah. they will be the saying, things, yeah, one, yeah, one obviously other things as well. But essentially, there's yeah. a number to do with some markers in your blood. And Suppose, if you've yeah. got above that marker, then they will pay out. If it's below that, then they won't. So that can be quite tricky because obviously, if you hear heart attack, you are just going to make a claim because this policy says it will cover you for heart attack. Um, there are some insurers that will pay out for any level of heart attack, but they are there's fewer of them than there are the others. So that will be where we start to get things like that, uh, where people just, they have applied, but unfortunately they've just not met the definition. We then have income protection. And actually on average, that's down at about 84.4% success rate, which is a lot lower than I expected because I know that with quite a lot of insurers where I've looked at them individually, their income protection claims are really, really high in terms of the percentage success. So, so Matt, why are we getting such a low turnout on that do we think yeah i i, I like you very surprised about 84 percent um i wonder what is quite included in there as an income protection type policy i'm not entirely sure um what is in there i can't think off the top of my head whether i could withhold of life quite quite what would be in there that would bring the figures mm -hmm. down um, I think I would need to understand that more in terms there, there of is another policy type that in protects income that the claim rate might be trickier, okay. um, but that sits in general insurance, so it shouldn't be in this statistic. No, no, no. Okay. In terms of um, misrep, then uh, I think there, there we're talking back pain, misrepresentation. We? We're talking men, men, uh, uh, mental health. Yeah, mental health and back pain and and, and musculoskeletal. Yeah, yeah, and both of those are. People will generally not think, unless they have a very good advisor, to think, oh, my back my back problem is relevant. Yes. Unless they have an advisor who is really good and explains, runs through the proposal form with them. So you're going to get, you, you, you will get an element of that. In terms of, um, uh, you, you've also got the mental health issues uh, in there. And again, um, although I... I, I believe I'm I'm seeing or hearing about great improvements in people being much more open about their mental health, yeah. then there is there is still going to be, I think, that concern that, that people just generally don't like talking about depression, anxiety, things, so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, and and will therefore misrep. What I would say is, and I know we're running out of time here, is we you know I, I've seen I'm not just an underwriter, whatever that's supposed to mean. Mm. Um, but I've been, uh, you know, fundamentally very, very interested in claims for, for many, many years. And the role of the IFA, so in, in, I'm going to be controversial here, in terms of advised business, the role of the IFA is absolutely pivotal in taking people through an application form in the questions. Yes. Absolutely you know, if you, some of these misrep cases and some of these statistics, um, we talk very much about the customer here and what yeah. they say. Then IFAs in there that don't help the situation either. So yes. we have to be, you know, we just have to be aware of that uh, uh, as well. It takes, it does very take two to tango. Absolutely. Okay, the very last statistic then, total permanent disability. Now, this is something extra for people who don't know. It's something extra that's offered within critical illness cover. It sometimes comes the standard. It's sometimes a paid for addition on it. 
And um, you tend to have it in sort of like a couple of different categories. So it can be like own occupation, potentially suited occupation or activities of daily living. So what that means is, is that you are clusters. If, if you if you have something that you're very, very poorly with, but it's not a listed critical illness, but it stops you from doing your own job or it stops you from doing a job similar to yours or potentially just doing day to day tasks, depending upon what you've given and been given by the insurer, it will potentially pay out. So the, the success rate for that is 70.3 percent in terms of um payments being paid out so Matt, i'm assuming that with that as well as everything else that we've got which would be potentially not the direct debits you know the, the payments being kept up to date the potential for misrepresentation which is that people haven't been completely honest or transparent when they've completed the forms either completely innocently or potentially deliberately on top of that with total permanent disability we also have these additional there's these extra definitions again where somebody I'm assuming some people might think, oh, well, I'll apply for this because I can't do my job. But then actually they actually have maybe a suited occupation definition and they could do an alternative job. And then that's been turned down that way. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, you're, you're 100 you're hundred percent right. The, um, a, a lot of policies are end up um, in terms of the TP def definition as um uh, ADL or similar, the harshest definition that, that can be applied. You have to be pretty poorly not to be able to, to carry out the activities of daily living. Yes. And people will often not really understand what they've bought, hence yes. my point about IFAs again. Yeah. Um, and, you know, claim because, you know, they've got a, dare, dare I say, a little bit of back pain. No such thing as a little bit yeah. of that pain, but um, where that you know ADLs go, just be far far more um, ill, if I can use that, um, yeah. than, than, than a bit of back pain. Um, and I I believe that is the it's not meeting definition that that famous expression we've used a lot today yeah. comes out um, a lot with TPD. Um, a lot of insurers simply default um, from say own occupation. That would pay out if you couldn't do your own job, but remember, yeah. totally permanently um, to an ADL or any um, uh, definition. And again, it's one of those areas whereby I think the industry could do a lot better, but you also have to put in, and, and this isn't like income protection, you have to put in, well, the, the amount of premium a TPD claim, sorry, a TPD benefit actually adds to the yes. package whether insurers really can afford to really yeah. have a more sophisticated way of underwriting it. And I mean that from a commercial basis as opposed to anything else. And I think, you know, as an underwriter, I think I'm, I'm very cognizant of that as well. But I think you, you, the, the, the one, the main one, without any shadow of doubt, is non-meeting definition on TPD. Definitely. Okay. Well, we'll have that as the end of the episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We hope these statistics and our explanations around them have been helpful. It might be something that you could use when you're speaking to your clients and just to be able to explain a little bit more about the way that things work. If you'd like a reminder of the next episode, we're going to be focusing upon kidney disease. Please drop me a message on social media or visit the website practical-protection.co.uk. And as always, don't forget that if you've listened to this as part of your work, you can claim a CPD certificate on the website. Thanks to our sponsors as the OCTA members. Thank you very much, Matt. I'll speak to you soon. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Bye.